Welcome back to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business using data. I'm Aaron Norris, along with co-host Sean O'Toole of Property Radar. And this week on episode 27, we've got Dr. Daryl Fairweather, Chief Economist of Redfin. I've been following her work on Twitter for some time, and she always brings a very interesting nuance to the party when it comes to the real estate economist game. She's got an interesting background with the Boston Fed during the foreclosure crisis. She worked at Amazon. And now working with Redfin, she studies studies consumer behavior on top of real estate trends. So this week, we talk about COVID-related trends and what's sticky, how different demographics and different generations are handling the pandemic, where they're moving to, what's popular, what's not, uh, trends in home ownership, um, and even what they're buying, and then other trends that she expects to see in 2021 and beyond. That and much more. Don't miss this week's show. Thank you for do- uh, joining us, Daryl. It's so nice to have you on the show. Uh, for people who are not familiar with Redfin, how do you describe it? It's a technology-driven real estate brokerage. So most people probably know Redfin from our website. You can go and look at all the listings that are available. But we also have a full brokerage with agents to help you buy or sell a home. And we use technology to make that process go a whole lot smoother. And we're also trying to be the one-stop shop for real estate. So we have a mortgage company. We have a title company. So pretty soon it's going to be everything related to buying or selling a home you'll be able to do with Redfin. Any other, why we're here, any other category that uh, is on the horizon uh, that we don't know about? Insurance uh, or I don't know. There's a lot of pieces. Um, nothing that I can disclose, although I think that we've, I think everything that's out there uh, we've already been talking about. Um, so the lesser known things that we do though is Redfin Concierge. Like I'm selling my home right now with Redfin Concierge. And so I have a Redfin Concierge agent helping organize all the work that needs to be done in the home. I'm remodeling the kitchen, the bathroom. We even knocked down a wall between the kitchen and the dining room. So although like the contractor is its own company, Redfin is helping coordinate all that work. So I don't have to lift a finger. I don't think How I does do. that work uh, financially. Does that, uh, does the money come out of the close of escrow or do you have to pay for that up front or? So Redfin concierge, they charge instead of a one or one and a half percent, it's two or two and a half percent, depending on whether you're buying and selling with us. And that extra one percent pays for the basics like new paint, light landscaping, cleaning, staging, and then everything on top of that is out of pocket. So I'm paying up front for the big work that's being done. Cool. Interesting. I didn't know about that. I didn't know about that at all. Yeah. Interesting. Juicy stuff. Okay. And then mm-hmm. your journey into the real estate space. Uh, Sean and I were just talking about your, your bio. Um, you're in 2009, you were with the Boston Fed for a while, right? Yes. So this was at the peak of the foreclosure crisis. I was doing research on behavioral economics, specifically on the behavioral reasons why people entered into foreclosure. That was like, I think the big economic revelation of the last uh, financial crisis was that Economists didn't really see it coming. They didn't predict that people would get so caught up in appreciation and valuation of homes that they would kind of forgo rationality. So we wanted to understand why people got involved in these mortgages that they couldn't end up paying. So I would call up homeowners and ask them a whole slew of questions about their financial situation, about the terms of their mortgage, trying to see if they understood the terms of their mortgage. Um, ask them some like behavioral questions, like, would you rather have $10 today or $15 in a year, things like that, to try to figure out what exactly happened. 
What did you any do? big? Uh, I mean, it was, this was quite a while ago. This was back in two thousand nine, yeah. and right, it was basically like an internship. So obviously, you've done a lot of things since then. Yeah. But because we, you know, got our start in foreclosures, it's it's particularly interesting uh, to us. So uh, if you don't mind, I'd love if you came away with any big conclusions or or uh, from that. Uh, just touch on that one more. Yeah, there were two big reasons that people ended up in foreclosure. One was that they just didn't think that home prices could go down. I mean, home prices had been going up for so long, they just couldn't imagine a situation where home prices would go down by as much as they did. And they did go down quite a lot. It was more than I think anybody was expecting. And then the second reason was people had like a crisis on top of that. So it wasn't enough for the home values to go down because you could keep paying your mortgage if you still had a job. Uh, but a lot of people, they lost their jobs and they had like a medical crisis or they got divorced or there was some other life circumstance where they couldn't pay their mortgage at the same time that their their home was going down in value and that's why they would end up in foreclosure. Interesting. Okay. Well, Definitely good stuff. Gotten- some questions that people are feeling in some markets because of sort of COVID migrations and prices doing some things. It just feels very similar. <laughs> so it's I really not though. <laughs> it's not. It's not. So let's talk about that. Let's just jump into it. Why not? Why? How is this time, in your opinion, so different than last time? Uh, it's really about just the fundamentals of supply and demand. Right now, there is more demand than there is supply, and that's why prices are going up so high. And people have a lot of equity in their homes. People have, the prices have been going up for quite a while. People have been paying off their loans and the kinds of people who've got loans since the last foreclosure crisis have had really good credit and are just the kind of people who aren't using their homes as piggy banks. So even if prices were to go down, most people have a really good cushion. And we also don't think that prices are gonna go down because there is this housing shortage. Even in a market like San Francisco where there's a ton of new listings hitting the market and people are leaving. Prices haven't collapsed. Prices are pretty steady. I mean, they're down maybe like 1% from last year in certain areas, but nothing like a crash. Yeah. There wasn't, there wasn't an excess housing supply in 2006, 2007 either really, right? It's not like population and number of housing has changed that much from that period of time, or do you feel like it has? There was an excess in certain places. So there was overdevelopment in like um, the suburbs of cities like Phoenix or Las Vegas. Uh, Builders were kind of getting overzealous in how much they could build and what prices they thought they could get for them. So that did contribute to supply. I mean, it didn't contribute to there being so much supply that everyone had a house to live in. We definitely never reached that point, but there was a bit of overbuilding. Um, And then the other point is just that the price growth back then really was based on, um, what's the word, uh, belief that prices would keep going up, basically speculation. Right now, the prices aren't being driven up by speculation. It's not like we're seeing um, a ton of investors trying to flip houses the way that they were back then, just based on the idea that prices had to keep going up and they can make their money back. So, I mean, uh, the the, there is a little lower percentage of flippers today than then, but the flippers weren't a very large part of the market even then. I think it peaked at around five or six percent, right? Um, yeah. So, so um, in terms of you know, like in my uh, local town here of, of Truckee, we've seen prices at the low end increase almost fifty percent since the uh, start of of COVID, and. Um, you know, that, that feels a little irrational too. 
Yeah, I think uh, Truckee is probably a, a good example of a place where there may be speculation based on how many people are leaving a place like San Francisco for a more rural place like Truckee and people may be getting ahead of themselves. I think what you may see happening is that there will be a couple of years of really fast price growth and then a couple of years of really slow price growth, maybe even slight price declines. But I don't think that prices will fall like below where they were last year, for example. Um, it just might be that they shoot up and then they kind of stabilize. Uh, I think Truckee is also interesting because it's in a very fire prone region. And that's something that also worries me is that people aren't taking into account these long term risks of housing and housing is a long term asset. Okay. <laughs> Do you get a sense that we'll have like a, a buyer's remorse phase, like when people experience their first winters uh, in, in new markets or they decide they hit the summer for the first time in Florida and you're like, what do you mean? This is humidity I've never <laughs> experienced. <laughs> We're going to have like a the great rethinking 2021. <laughs> it's possible. I think that there'll be a group of people who are very happy with their moves and never want to go back. And there may be some people who maybe got ahead of themselves. Um, but I think Overall, the, the trend has been for a long time, people leaving expensive cities for more affordable Southern cities like Miami or Austin, and this pandemic has accelerated that. So the fundamental reasons that people were leaving expensive cities are, are going to be there long after the pandemic. What's the behavioral, like, you know, you hear that, that piece a lot, right? That a lot of people are leaving this place for that place. But, but the places that they're leaving really aren't declining in value. It's not like there's a big declines in population, big declines in prices in these places that they're leaving, right? Everybody says everybody's leaving California, yet California prices are pretty much up across the board. You know, condos in San Francisco are a little soft, but, you know, it's not like people left. And so what's, what's the behaviors, what, what's happening to fill those people are leaving. So obviously some people are leaving, but other people are coming or can you explain that? Or do you have some thoughts on that? Well, in some of these expensive California cities for a long time, there hasn't been enough development to keep up with demand. So people can leave and go buy homes other places and you'll still have people left over to fill all the houses that are there just because there wasn't enough, there weren't enough houses to begin with. Um, okay. In terms of the reasons why people are leaving, like taxes are definitely driving people away from California and just the very, the cost of housing. Like maybe pe people who may have been longtime renters and are really hoping to become homeowners one day just gave up on the idea of becoming homeowners in expensive cities and are looking to buy homes in places like Salt Lake or Las Vegas. Right, right. Yeah, you talk to people in Phoenix and Salt Lake and uh, I just saw a little meme in, in California that said, uh, or in Texas and uh I'm going to forget it exactly, but it was basically like, uh, um, you know, uh, Californians, please quarantine in place and stop coming <laughs> you know, to Texas. <laughs> and um, and uh, so, you know, it, but what's interesting is, is, you know, you hear about all these places and it's like, is California like some sort of crazy, you know, uh, people generating machine that just pushes people out elsewhere but it's not dropping in population. I mean, it's it's not growing as fast, but it's not dropping in population. It's just hard to believe it can have this much outflow and this much impact in so many places and without a, a real decline. Well, California is an immigration hub. Well, it's a port of entry uh, for people coming from all around the world. So a lot of the people who are leaving are U.S. citizens and then they get replaced by 
foreigners. Um, so that's one of the reasons that California's population hasn't been declining despite how many people are leaving is that they just attract people from all over the world. Okay. All right. Are you looking at 2020? Is there anything that surprised you about? Well, well, 2020, does the COVID, (laughs) is there, is there anything that has surprised you about the behavioral side of how we've handled the pandemic specifically when it comes to real estate? Um, I think what surprised me the most is how quickly everyone has, has changed their whole life plans. Um, like, uh, I mean, I am an example of somebody who moved during the pandemic, but I, I think that part of it has to do with how long it's lasted. If it was just going to, it would just happen for a couple of months. I don't think people would have like reorganized their whole lives around it. Uh, but the pandemic has, I think, proven to people that there are alternate ways to live. You can work from home and be a productive worker. Um, there's people have learned to value being close to family. So I think it's just revealed a lot of people's preferences that they didn't know even were there because they never had the option to explore them. And that has caused a lot of people to just reassess their lives, including where they live. I think we jumped right in here. And, and uh, I actually, we, we talked about like taking a step back first. And um, you're a behavioral econom- economist. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's kind of why we're asking some of the questions we're asking. <laughs> but, but let's just take a step back for a second for the, for the folks uh, listening in and, and talk to us about behavioral economics and, and, you know, how that might be different and how you might view the world differently than, you know, some other economists at, at uh, similar companies, you know, um, that don't come from the behavioral economics side of, of things. Sure. So the basic difference is that behavioral economists assume that people are prone to biases, that they have these psychological factors that lead them to make decisions that may not be in their best interest. So when I look at things like buying a home, for example, instead of just looking at the price or how much money a person will make, I look at things like what are the psychological factors leading someone to buy a home? Are they buying a home because they have this belief that buying a home is a sign of becoming an adult, which exists, I think, in American society. Um, Or if they're selling a home, are they like attached to their home in kind of an irrational way where they think the value of their home is going to be more valuable than a very similar home next door? So I think especially because buying and selling a home is something that people only do once, maybe twice in their whole lifetimes, people are prone to make mistakes. And I just find that really interesting because it's the most, one of the most important financial decisions that people will make and they just don't get very much practice at it. One of the things just among like my personal millennial friends that I'm finding interesting is that when they decide to have kids, they decide they have to have a home before they can have kids. Like, like ha- owning a home is a requirement of having children. <laughs> like, yeah, and and that look- would be an example of a behavioral, right? If you look at um, the way that home ownership has been trending and where the, how the birth rate has been trending in the U.S., they do seem to follow each other, that people are, are having to delay both. Uh, and it may be that, yeah, buying a home is a, a prerequisite for a lot of people to having kids, which it definitely isn't. And that's, I think, an American thing, too. <laughs> right. It's a belief. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a belief thing rather than a requirement, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's just a good, uh, a good piece. And you spent some time working... Um, 
you know, at actually looking at behaviors within Amazon, if I'm right, and yes. uh, and using that not just for looking at markets and real estate and things like that, but but also how to like better uh, manage people and processes uh, too. So I mean, it has a wide area of applicability besides just economic outcome. Yes, I'm behavioral economics basically applies to any situation where you know you think that people are going to follow one behavior and they don't, <laughs> you can probably analyze that using behavioral economics. At Amazon, I was looking in particular at how to um, increase employee engagement. There was this issue where basically they had increased performance of employees, but they were noticing that there was pretty high attrition and they wanted to figure out why that was and how to basically make their employees happier. So that was a, a pretty fun job just to make employees happier. <laughs> Cool. So you get you get better perform, performance out of folks, but maybe you burn them out and you lose them. So that doesn't really do you any good in the long run. And so how do you? Yeah, it's a, it's a very intuitive thing, I think, for most people to understand that, uh, you know, happier workers are more productive. But sometimes people need to see that in black and white to actually make changes in that direction. So do you, can you reduce that to a formula? <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe, yeah. That's, I think that's proprietary. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Happy. We don't get to see the math behind it. All right. All right. I think with that background now, let's let's keep going. Sorry, Aaron. All right. Well, I follow you on Twitter and and I, I enjoy your perspective and maybe it, it is that behavioral side. It always just seems a little bit different than some I follow a lot of real estate economists. What keeps you excited about this industry? Real estate sort of seems so dry. <laughs> Do you like I said, I think it's it's like the most important decision that most people will make in terms of their finances and they don't have a lot of information going into it. So it's just this really interesting case study in economics and behavioral economics in particular, where you can really see the whole economy and just this decision of whether and when to buy a home or to sell a home. Does, does Redfin lean on you? I mean, with that perspective, everything from a web site design to the process of uh, paperwork. I mean, there's so much that can be applied here. Do they lean on you for that kind of insight into the data and the process? Yes, and my team. I don't do it all. <laughs> so luckily, I have a team of economists, um, and and we get tapped quite a bit uh, to weigh in on some of these economic issues that Redfin faces. Interesting. Can you share any of the maybe the insights that you bring to the table that I don't know people wouldn't think about? One thing that comes up a lot is when we try to understand how much of Redfin's growth is basically tailwinds or headwinds from the greater housing market. So we'll come in and try to figure out, you know, how where is the housing market headed relative to where Redfin is? What can we attribute to the initiatives that Redfin has done versus just what's going on in the housing market? Hmm. Interesting. Well, because Redfin is definitely one of the top 15 real estate websites in in the country. I've been obsessed with iBuying for years, and I always have very much admired the Zillow and the Redfin just because you had such online presence and everything from the web design and the customer trusting the data that you provide on the website from the comparable sales to price. It's just, it's been very interesting to watch. And I was just curious how much involved with what you do, it could can touch so many pieces of the business, which is fun. Um, real estate is ripe for disruption too. Um, how much demand are you seeing from Gen Z and Y entering to the real estate space, pushing companies to become more digital or to be a lot more consumer focused in an industry that doesn't have 
doesn't have the best reputation for being consumer friendly. We'll put it that way. Gen Y, that's millennials, right? They are a very large growing part of the home buying market. Um, there's going to be this wave of home buying demand coming from millennials reaching home buying age. You know, they're getting ready to have kids and <laughs> they think they need to buy a home beforehand. So it's definitely something that we think about, like um, in terms of building a product and a service that millennials will like, and then Gen Z on top of that, when they come down the pipeline and are ready to buy homes. I think that customers are going to come to expect a lot more, uh, a lot better user experience. I mean, I just bought a home and it was remarkable how easy it was to get all my mortgage documents uploaded this time versus when I bought a home five years ago. And I think that's what customers are going to come to expect. You just go to one landing page, you upload all the stuff, you get a little check mark that says whether it's been approved or not, or it's gone through underwriting or not, and your agent can see it in the same spot. Like that's that's how it really should be. Yeah. Where is Red, and, and sorry, I should know this, but where does Redfin fall right now on the whole iBuying side of things where, you know, the allow the person to sell their house before they, they repurchase and, and uh, you know, smooth that part of not having to juggle two transactions at, at once. And, and you know, do you, is there a vision there uh, that Redfin has and, and where are they in the rolling that out? Yeah, we have Redfin now and we're in quite a few markets. I don't have them off the top of my head, but we're all around the country and I know we're expanding. And I think one of the differences between Redfin and some of these other iBuyers is that we want to offer the home seller whatever option works best for them. So we'll present both the iBuying option and the traditional option and you know the concierge option and really let the seller decide what fits their needs. And with one of the big challenges for a lot of people is that since it's such a seller's market, it can be stressful to have to sell and buy at the same time. People aren't willing to accept selling contingencies. So iBuying definitely has a place for some people. I like right. It allows them to come in with an all cash offer because they have the, the, the knowledge that their sell their, the sale side will close for sure. Right. Right. I like the concierge yeah. option. So when the consumer thinks that their uh, home is a valued a lot more, it'd be like, well, let's bring in a contractor and see what it's going to take to, Get rid of your 70s kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, I I mean, I have two, I have a two and a half year old and eight month old. And like, I just have been postponing so much work on my house. And yeah, the idea of having a contractor in with two kids under two is just like a nightmare. So I was happy to just get out of the house and leave it up to the concierge agent. So you move first into your new place and then, and then put the other one up for sale after the fact. And, and, um, and it'd be interesting, you know, one of the things that I haven't seen, you know, much of yet is kind of that bridge financing kind of solution, right? Like, hey, I'd like to get, I'd like to list this on the market and get the the full price, but I still need to go buy this other house first. I have this asset back here that worst case is worth enough, you know, to, you know, if I've got, I've got the position and the difference, like, it seems like, the, you know, some options there still exist to give people the best of both worlds. Yeah. I mean, I know bridge loans exist. I'm not sure if they're going up or down in popularity right now. The big drawback I think is that people don't know what their budget is going to be. Right. So 
if they take out this bridge loan to buy a more expensive home than their current home doesn't sell for as much as they thought it would, they're on the hook for that. So I think it's just a really stressful thing. And with I buying, at least you get the certainty that this is going to be the sale price. Has there been any research on, on consumers moving to different markets and if they're taking a chance, I mean, will their work is working from home sticky? Is this the new normal or are they taking a chance just crossing their fingers, hoping that they're moving and going to allow to stay? And if not, maybe they'll get a new job. I don't know. I haven't seen any research on that. Uh, We're actually building a survey on that right now. And preliminarily, it looks like most people believe that if they're working remote now, they'll be able to continue to work remotely. And that makes sense just from an economic perspective. Like it only takes a couple of employers, leaders to make the call that work from home is allowed for them and other companies will follow suit because if they don't, they don't remain competitive in in, in the landscape anymore. And it's also disadvantageous, I think, to the employer because they can hire people for more affordable salaries and more affordable places. They don't have to just pay people to be able to afford to live close to the office. I think there are going to be some employers who try to claw people back, but people will kind of self-sort based on their own preferences. If you want to go to the office, I'm sure you'll be able to find an employer who will want you there. And if you don't, you'll probably be able to find one who will be more flexible, especially if you're in a high demand field. All right. I, think it's, I think the big stress there is on managers. Like I've been a remote, I've managed people remotely for 20 years. And so it's like, it's like, you know, it's no different, you know, pre-stay at home and post-stay at home for me. Like, you know, there were less people in the office, you know, but uh, it made, it really made no difference. Uh, but for somebody who's used to management by wandering around, boy, their life changed a lot this year. Yeah. And I think they'll probably see a big shift in the kinds of skills you need to be a manager or at least a successful manager of remote employees. Yeah, no, totally agree with that. And uh, so the other side of that, right, we've got people predicting kind of the, maybe the death of cities, the re-ruralization of America is one thing that I talk about a lot. Um, And and what's your outlook for cities on the other side, right? The, you know, we talked earlier about people leaving those. What's your thoughts there? I'm pretty optimistic for the only, there are only really two cities where we're seeing more people leaving or people leaving to a point that it's, it's worrisome. And that's San Francisco and New York because they are the most expensive cities. And a lot of people have been living there just because they have to, to be close to the office. So I think that's where we're seeing the, the biggest exodus of people, but those two cities are also like very culturally important. And once the, once the world opens up again, people are going to want to, you know, go to Broadway or go to museums in San Francisco. They have a lot to offer. So I think what these cities will have to do is pivot from being basically office-based to being more of an attractor for people who want to live there for the lifestyle and also attract tourists. Because I know tourism is dead right now, but when things open up again, there are going to be plenty of tourists who want to go visit San Francisco and New York for those for those reasons, cultural reasons. Yeah, agree. There's, I also just read um, a uh, you, you know uh, Pete uh, Flint from uh, Trulia, founder of Trulia. He has a, a venture capital firm called uh, NFX, and they just did a really interesting article on and NFX uh, stands for Network Effects and talks just basically about how to grow and scale, um, you know, uh, business. So, um, but they just did a really interesting um, uh, blog post article, whatever, 
on the network effects of, you know, kind of key cities and showing how much the difference in growth and valuation, et cetera, are of new business is in these uh, city centers versus uh, other places. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they were definitely coming to the conclusion that that's going to continue, right? Um, and that these economic hubs will still be important. Have you given any thought to that? Uh, well, I think that, so a place like Austin, for example, is in the news for attracting, you know, Tesla, uh, Oracle. There's a lot. I mean, it seems to be an emerging tech hub. So I think it's going to be very important in the future for the growth of a city like Austin. Once one big employer in a certain field, you know, establishes themselves in a city, it becomes much more attractive for other employers in that same field because they don't have to work as hard to convince people to move there because the people they want to hire are already there. Um, so I think like. I think it will be still relevant, especially in the growth of some of these emerging job centers. And I think we're probably going to see more employers pay attention to where their employees want to work remotely. And if there becomes like a critical mass of people in one place, they'll open up another office so that they can still have somewhat of a office culture. Yeah. And we've, we've done that in uh, our Portland office. Most of our Portland folks work from home. But uh, we have this office where folks can come in and, and gather and congregate and, uh, you know, uh, meet for lunch and work on projects and stuff. And, and I actually love that model where, you know, it's flexible for the employee, but they do have a place to go if there's remodeling or kids or something mm-hmm. going on at home that they need to get away from. So I think that hybrid model has a lot of, uh, a lot of potential. Um, you have access to such cool data. You don't have to wait for the census. You don't have to wait month <laughs> over month. Uh, in a lot of ways, you're seeing things live as they ha- as they happen. That has got to be tremendously cool. Um, mm-hmm. I was particularly interested in asking you this question. As people are relocating, behaviorally, what makes a great city? Is it just a function of affordability? Is it vitamin D in the sun? Like what? Why are people moving where they're moving? Well, I think pre-pandemic, a big driver was just where they could find a job that gave them, you know, the kind of lifestyle they wanted. But now that the relationship between where you live and where you work has been tethered, people are moving more towards where they want to live for their personal preferences. So for some people, that means moving to be close to family, moving back to their hometown. Um, For some people, it's moving to more sunny places. The Sun Belt has been a big attractor of people for a long time and it'll continue to, to be that way. Um, and affordability is a factor, but I think it really is just the bigger picture of, you know, where, if you're, if you're, for example, raising a family, where do you want to send your kids to school? Are you going to be close to your parents or your in-laws to help with childcare? Does the city or town have the values that you align yourself with? All of those factors are important to people. Redfin's really made the name for themselves as a brokerage as being probably one of the strongest, you know, real estate search sites. Why is it that still no search sites allow you to search by any of these things that as a prospective home buyer that's now looking to move, I care about, right? I can't search by what activities are in the area. I can't search by cost of living. I can't search by, um, you know, job availability in my career, like all these things that I think drive people to move. Not a single search site offers any of those as search criteria. Any thoughts on that? 
So I think the way that most people buy a home is that they narrow down to a neighborhood or a, a city or neighborhood, and then they start looking for the home that they want. And those factors that you mentioned don't vary a whole lot at the neighborhood, like within a neighborhood. So you can go and find the cost of living perhaps on a different portal, and then it's just a lot less burdensome to integrate it into the listing website. I mean, anything that you put on the listing website costs something computationally. So I think that's one of the reasons you can't find like literally everything. But at least on for Redfin, if you go to our Redfin data center, we do have this thing that we developed called the job opportunity tool where you can type in your occupation and see how much money you would have left over after paying for housing costs and energy costs and things like that, like basically your disposable income based on your occupation and any metro in the US. So again, it probably that wouldn't vary at the neighborhood level, but it does vary at the metro level. So you can use that tool to kind of narrow down to a metro and then you can go over to the listing website and look for houses within the metro. Super cool. I like that. So one of the things that you do get to see, right, is you've got a lot of people coming to your site and searching. So you can actually answer that question authoritatively. Do people, when you have a identify a particular user showing up to your site, are they only looking in one location or are they bouncing around the way my wife and I do from, you know, Austin to San Luis Obispo to Portland to where, you know, like we're all over the place. We don't know where the heck, you know, next is. We'll always have a place in Tahoe, but uh, I'm, I'm sure there'll be some other place we, we have at some point. And, um, you know, but we're all over the place. So is that something you, you look at and say, wow, are people having a hard time figuring out location or does everybody that show up on our site know where they want to be? So it's, it's, it's a hard question to answer because a lot of people browse Redfin for leisure purposes. So it's hard to know if people are bouncing around because they really can't decide where they want to live or because they're just curious about, you know, how much does a home cost where my sister-in-law lives, for example, I'm just curious about what it would be like. Um, what we do is that we will look at search activity for people who we think are serious based on their, they've narrowed down and they're looking in one area a certain percentage of the time. And then we can identify people that we think are seriously thinking about moving from one metro area to another metro area. And we report out on that in our, in our migration report. Okay. Interesting. Tell us a little bit about that migration report. Yeah. So unsurprisingly, migration is at an all-time high. Uh, Almost 30% of people are looking to leave their metro area for a different metro. And some of the top places are Sacramento. A lot of people in the Bay Area are looking to move to Sacramento. It's close by. It's much more affordable. So that's a big driver. Um, Austin is another one. Phoenix. These are kind of the areas that have been in the top for a while, but it's just been increasing how many people are looking to move to those places. Good. And how often do you guys publish that? Quarterly. Quarterly. Nice. And it's just kind of the top locations where people are searching and, and you're able to tell where they're from based on, you know, like the reverse IP address kind of thing. You, you see the IP addresses they're coming from, you know, roughly their location. So you can see where they are and where they're looking. Yes. Yeah, so right? you can... Yeah, so you can click on a place like Austin and you can see what percent of people are searching from the Bay Area, Los Angeles, New York, DC. We have those breakdowns and we publish those quarterly. Super cool. Do you see insights into 
Is there anything surprising in the data when it comes to what they're looking for? Are the homes larger, maybe more bedrooms, um, more space? Yes. Yeah, so we looked into whether people are looking for more spacious homes and they are. Um, I forget what the exact number is, but square footage is a bigger is a bigger ask right now. I think prices are going up more for the bigger homes. We looked at price point too, where we published a luxury report looking at the top 5% in terms of the Redfin estimate, how many of those homes are selling right now and what's the price growth for those homes. And luxury home sales are just like through the roof right now. Um, I think in Q2, they were up around 46, 42%. It was in the 40s um, year over year. So just huge growth. And also second home sales are up a ton. They're up 100%. So some of those items that may have been like nice-to-haves before the pandemic are must-haves because people are spending more time at home. Probably a lot more drive for more bedrooms too, right? Because bedrooms can be offices. Right, right. The home office is a is a big ask. Uh, a nice backyard. People want their private outdoor space. A nice kitchen because everyone's cooking at home. Yeah, yeah, that all makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, I know the builders have talked about um, for the last number of years the average square footage that the builders were doing has slowly gone down. I don't know if that was a function on average of more condos being built or something, but um, I think the conversation is that that's expected to increase as well. In you, you have some, I will definitely link to this article, you have some 2021 predictions uh, on, on the Redfin website. Maybe you can share with us a little bit about some of the things you've talked about because you definitely talk about some things I don't usually hear. Uh, so one is that we think that home sales are going to increase more than 10% next year. This year, there was this big pause in the real estate market at the beginning of the pandemic, and then it shot right back up. And overall, we're going to end the year about 5% higher home sales than in 2019. But then in 2021, we expect that to increase another 10%. And that's driven a lot by low mortgage rates. I mean, mortgage rates are just lower than anyone ever thought they would get. And um, that's making home ownership more affordable. And also remote work has just encouraged a lot of people to make a move. They're spending more time at home. Uh, they're reevaluating whether or not the place they're in is really where they want to be, or they're just living there because it's close to the office. And that's just driving a lot of people to, to move. It's happened this year. And I think it's going to continue even more so next year. I think one of my favorite headlines of your report is something I, I don't see a ton of people talking about. You said the homeownership rate will reach 70% for the first time since 2005. And that looks so different because we're not doing mm -hmm. liar loans anymore. So you can't breathe and get a loan. So that 70% seems a little bit more real this time. Yeah, and so one thing again with remote work is that if you were living in a place like the Bay Area, maybe you had a very good salary, but you still couldn't afford Bay Area prices. Well, now you can keep your salary, at least most of it, and move to a suburb that's more affordable or move to a completely different city like Sacramento or Las Vegas. And home ownership is now much more attainable to you. And if you were renting before, then you become a homeowner, that increases the home ownership rate. But there's also this secondary effect where if you're renting, and let's say you were renting out a condo from somebody else, that person, that, that landlord is probably looking at the rental market right now and thinking like, I don't want to have to deal with finding a new tenant. I don't want to have to drop my rent by 20%, which is how much rent has gone down in Seattle. So we're going to see a lot more condos converted into apartments. I think it's going to start with these kind of mom and pop landlords who were holding on to multiple properties because why not? Homes values are going up so much. A lot of them are going to reevaluate that 
and there's going to be more um, basically starter homes available to people even in cities because condos are more affordable than some of these single family homes. You had some insights too um, into, and I thought this was interesting, expensive cities will invest in their cultures as as way to get people to come back. Um, that was a really interesting take, uh, why you even thought about that. So cities are going to have to invest a little bit in making it attractive for people to want to stay. Yeah, and, and just make it, I mean, people aren't going to stay just because that's where their job is anymore. And I think of a place like Paris, for example, I mean, I don't think people decide to live in Paris because that's where they're going to get their job or that's where they want to start their careers. It's it's because people dream of living there because of the culture, because of the food, because of the art. And a city like New York has that going for it too. Um, and they can pivot from just being a white collar center to being more of a cultural center because they have that going on for them. Mm. So does that mean San Francisco is going to clean up the streets and you know, some I think they have bit? an incentive too. I'm, I think that's what they will, I think that's a smart thing to do. We'll see if they're able to do that politically. <laughs> I don't have much of a prediction there. I mean, obviously homelessness has been something that has been a very uh, tenuous issue for Seattle, San Francisco, some of these other cities, New York too. So I, 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 I wouldn't be an expert there on how they would go about that, but I think that's yeah, what they no. should work towards is just making it a more pleasant place to live for everyone who wants to live there. You said something earlier that's a very common perception, right? That lower interest rates make homes more affordable. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, when I look back historically, like you look at the GI Bill, right? And we saw the largest increase in home prices, you know, as a result. And I think all the benefits of 30-year financing and stuff were sucked up by home prices. And for those people that I guess, you know, can get the credit and the rest, it it doesn't really make a difference in their payment and it artificially increases, but it really increases overall. It makes home ownership less affordable, right? Because you're going to pay lower interest rates, higher prices. So same payment at the end of the day. So really the same affordability once it, it, it goes into account, but property taxes are higher, insurance is higher, right? Everything else is higher. So, um, Everybody's cheering low, you know, interest rates, but I, I'm, I don't know. I, I'm more and more convinced that low interest rates have made housing a lot less affordable. What do you think of I that? I think if you look at the total cost of owning a home in the long run, it is a wash. When interest rates go down, prices go up. And like you said, prices also impact property taxes. Uh, but it does open up, at least for 2021, this opportunity, this window when you know, for the same price, you can get a more affordable home, especially for those short-term changes. Like we did an analysis that actually just went out today about when was the most affordable month to buy a home this year based on what your mortgage payment would be. Yeah. Yeah. And in most of the markets, it it was actually November, even though prices have gone up the whole year because interest rates have been so low. Combination of low rate and price. Yeah. There were a few November closing or November going into contract? Uh, going under contract, yeah, going under contract. Okay, interesting. Um, there was in a few in a few markets, April was the best because I mean that was at the peak of the uh, when the shutdowns first happened. I think it was like San Francisco, Los Angeles. That that was when it was the most affordable. Because and but and there were some markets where it was January, but overall nationally, November was the best. Ah, 
That's uh, I wouldn't have guessed that. So that's that's great. That's that's a that was a good piece of research. Was that one your idea? <laughs> it was a team thing. <laughs> All right, that, that's nice. Yeah, give credit to everybody. <laughs> There's been some talk about Gen Z, this upcoming generation, getting into home ownership a lot. They're interested in home buying a lot sooner than their the Gen Y group, uh, millennials. So uh, much money in their Robinhood accounts, they got to do something with it. <laughs> their Bitcoin has gone crazy. Yeah, is there any thought to why that shift all of a sudden? That's interesting. I actually hadn't heard that, that Gen Z is more interested. I think um, it came up at a conference last year at the National Association of Real Estate Editors. And I think it came from the builders that they had done a survey. And Gen Z, one of their hurdles was that they thought they had to have 11% down, but that they were very interested in using a realtor in the transaction mm-hmm. and they were interested in home ownership uh, more so than their millennial cohorts, which I thought was very interesting. I mean, I think millennials were scarred by the foreclosure crisis. I think they, Great I think point. up until that point, we heard from our parents that home ownership was like the most safe investment. And then that logic just got totally upended during the foreclosure crisis. And I think a lot of millennials just started to think, well, maybe this isn't the safest thing. Why not spend money in the stock market if there's a risk that home values could go down just the way that stock market prices go down? That's an, a lot of people don't talk about that though. They just said, hey, they decided to overeducate. They have too much debt and that's why. But they don't talk about them watching their parents go through the foreclosure crisis as possibly one of the data points that caused them to hold on. So um, part of that student debt is their parents not being able to pitch in as much as they probably planned to because of what happened to them. So, I mean, that really made millennials feel it very personally. Mm-hmm. Are the baby boomers doing anything different from real estate this time around? Are they staying in place? Are they still net sellers of real estate? I don't know. People have been staying in their homes longer. Um, and part of that is people, you know, avoiding, I think, senior living facilities. I mean, that's probably going to increase even more during the pandemic. People would prefer just to live in their homes, modify their homes, and people are living longer and staying healthier longer. So they'd rather just stay in their homes. Um, Another reason though, is just the way that the tax code is set up in a lot of places. So in California, for example, your property tax gets set, it can't go up by more than a certain amount. I think it's 2% a year. Mm -hmm. So if home values keep going up and your property taxes don't, then you don't have this motivation to find a place that um, to, to move because then you're gonna take a hit and your new property taxes. Interesting on the the property taxes, like a lot of people go 2% and only goes up 2% a year, but you know, 2% is more than inflation has averaged for the last 10 years, right? So in terms of like the money being generated, even at just 2% for, you know, firefighters and teachers and stuff, it's, it's exceeding inflation, um, you know, at least for the last 10 years, there was a period of time back in the, you know, 70s and 80s when that, that, Prop 13 first went into account where that wasn't true. So the fact that, you know, real estate is inflating so much faster than inflation. I mean, how, how long that that's got to have a, that's got to stretch, you know, to, to a certain point, not be possible anymore. Right. So does, does, infl- does real estate go super flat at some point, like, um, you know, in Japan, right. When they had their, their great uh, debt problem back in the 80s, right? Home prices have been relatively flat since, and they've had very low interest rates. I think a 30, 40-year mortgage is now 1.5% there. 
Um, is that is that our future? Super flat real estate prices because we just continue to have them exceed inflation so much that it, it has to stop at some point. Uh, lots to get to that question. Um, so first of all, <laughs> back to the property taxes. I, the issue isn't so much what California charges in property taxes. I think you can make an argument that you know property taxes should you know not increase, but I think what's but are not increased more than 2%. The issue is that your property taxes are different if you stay in your home versus if you sell and buy a home that's the same exact value as your current home. So if you personally are looking to move from one side of town to the other side of town to be closer to your kids or something like that, you may not make that decision just because you don't want to miss out on your property tax savings. So it creates this distortion where people just stay in their homes longer and there are as many homes available for sale. Um, just for just for so, everybody listening out there, that's only true if you're under 55 now. If you're over 55, you get you get to move it with you. But we oh yeah, they did change this that. Year. And I think yeah. they changed it too that like uh, it, it used to be that you could pass it down to your kids and now you yeah, can only you pass it down to your kids if, no, I think if they live in it, they can't yeah. use it as like an investment property. Oh, right, right. Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, so back to, does it have to go flat at some point? Inflation versus, uh, yeah. Yeah, so again, back to Japan. So I think Japan isn't really comparable to how real estate works in the U.S. because there's this culture in Japan where when you buy a house, you basically tear it down and build a new house. Um, they like to build custom houses. And I think that's one of the reasons that their home prices don't go up as much because it's kind of this, it's, a, it's not a long-term asset to them. It's like a short-term asset. I mean, the underlying land is still um, long-term, but the house they view is more of a temporary thing that you build to your own taste. In the U.S., that doesn't happen so much. And I don't think there's any reason that home prices have to follow inflation either. If anything, the fact that inflation is low is an extra reason that you would see home prices go up. Because the more people say, like people may not be spending the more people save in terms of their disposable income on not going to the movies every week, but spending money on Netflix, which is more affordable, or they're not upgrading their computer and spending extra thousand dollars on it. Um, computers are getting cheaper, things like that. The more money they have left over to spend on housing, and it actually can increase demand for housing. And if there isn't a commensurate increase in supply, that'll cause home prices to go up. There are a couple of asset or investments, assets, goods, in the U.S., where prices have gone up faster than inflation, housing, healthcare, uh, education, education, and all anything that all of these things have in common is that they're not just goods or services; they're also investments. So people put their money into it not just because they enjoy them, but they expect to get a return on it. Okay, good. And on, um, shoot, I, I lost it. Uh, but I, I think there's a really so there's the um, one of the things that people have been talking about because of the pandemic and not being able to go to movies and not going out to eat as much is a savings glut, right? And, and you were kind of touching on that, that, you know, that people do have now extra money to put somewhere. And so some of that is going to housing. And, you know, I've heard talk of there's a trillion dollar savings glut that when we get through this is going to come pouring into the economy. I mean, we may see a, a real, so is that part of your, was that part of what you took into account in terms of this, you know, 10% growth next year, that some of that savings glut's going to come through and find its way into housing and, and be very bullish for housing next year? 
I mean, it does seem like that people are keen to spend money on housing. I think part of that is what you said, that people have more, they aren't able to spend money on other things. And so they're wanting to spend on housing. People are also spending more time in their homes. When we're out of this pandemic, I think there's going to be pent up demand for some of those more experiential uh, goods and services like travel or going to the nail salon or yeah or whatever um so i think i would i would actually worry or not worry i'm not too worried about it but i think we may see a temporary spike in prices for those things and i apologize if you can hear my toddler he just probably got home from the park (laughs) i love it parks are fun (laughs) is there any any data that you wish you had as a an economist that you think would make a, a difference in your predictions uh it would be great to have more fine breakdowns on how people are spending their money right now. Like if I knew precisely how much money people were spending on travel or services before the pandemic, how much they aren't spending on that now. And we can kind of look at that at a broad level, like looking at the savings rate. But what we saw with the savings rate was that there's a big spike when people got those $1,200 checks and then it's been winding down ever since. There'll probably be another smaller spike with the $600 checks that are coming out. so yeah, it would be interesting to know how much people are saving for their bills versus saving just because they don't have anywhere to spend the money. Okay. Any other really interesting things that you're watching that would completely change the game for you in 2021? I'm I'm just excited about technology and real estate. I mean, there's been this big... I think people, the people, during the pandemic, people have been trying out new ways to buy homes, whether it's clicking through a 3D scan on a home, having their agent do a, a tour, a video tour of a home. So I think next year will be, or in the years to come, it'll be really interesting to see how much more technology adoption there is in real estate. Very cool. Well, anything else we should talk about before we talk about where people should, can follow your work? You do a lot of really yeah. cool stuff. Your team does. Well, maybe just list off other, I mean, the migration report I wasn't familiar with. So are there other uh, key reports and things you'd like to to mention folks to check out? Sure, we do a luxury report every quarter. So looking at just that top 5% of home values. Well, actually, actually, we've changed a bit. So we break it out by different price points. It's not just luxury, but we do compare different price points and the home sales that are occurring in there. Uh, We have a new construction report. So tracking how much, um, how many new homes are being built. Uh, what else do we have? Oh, we have like hottest neighborhoods. We just published that report and the top neighborhoods right now are vacation towns and suburbs. That's where people want to move. Uh, and they're moving away from the cities. Some of these places, like I mentioned, that are more desirable for their lifestyles. Do we get to swipe right, swipe left, hot, not? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we got to think of like a better adjective in real estate. All we ever talk about is like real estate is so hot right now or... Yeah. <laughs> just doesn't sound as good like it's so livable the quality of life is amazing yeah. no, it's, <laughs> how do you capture that interesting yeah. i will make sure to link to uh some of those reports um i follow you on twitter um that's where i, yes. I stay on top of the, a lot of stuff that you're specifically talking on and um, with their phd anyone wants to follow me yeah you and i'll definitely talk about link, board link. games and real estate <laughs> you say board games yeah, that's one of my that's one of my interests. You can actually see my part of my collection back there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those are, I couldn't see that. The, I thought those were books. I have to ask favorite board games of twenty twenty one. What should we be playing? Uh, if you're into real estate and board games, you should check out Suburbia. It's this great game where you can build a town, you can put down housing, you can build offices, and you can competitively design your own your own town. 
Guilty pleasure for me of SimCity. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's a great first fan of SimCity. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. I can get lost for hours in SimCity. I I don't have it anymore on my iPad because I would play it too much. It's ridiculous. I know we're out of time, but that just reminded me. Big, big, one one last big question. Uh, Re-realization, you know, what are you seeing in buying trends out in places that, you know, people wouldn't have previously bought? Are you seeing any of that? Low Earth orbit? yeah. During the summer, rural rural home prices spiked well above urban prices. It was like rural prices going up the most, then suburban, then urban. Just as people people wanted to get out to the wide open spaces, I think that's part of just the pandemic. And maybe I think part of that there will be a, a backlash to it. Like I think people maybe over-indexed on the benefit of wide open spaces uh, when there was some fear of dense living at the beginning. Um, but in the long term, I think that we will see people leave urban areas for more suburban places. So you still so but so more bullish on suburban than rural. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. I think I think you'll see like the urbanization of the suburbs, where you see more restaurants pop up in the suburbs, uh, more shopping things like that, and maybe the suburbanization of more rural areas. But yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be too bullish on like you know places that don't have a ton of amenities. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. There's only so many things you can do in a (laughs) cornfield. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'll make sure to post all these links so people can follow your work. And thanks for being here. Thank you. This is a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that join the community and you'll be forwarded to the Property Radar community where you can ask questions about the current show and even see upcoming guests and ask questions there. We'd love to engage with you in the community, so check it out. Please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, and share on your favorite platform where you're listening to the show. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.